today's title, today's topic is Getting Stoned, part one of two. Everybody loves that, don't they? Well, not everyone. Okay, everyone loves the famous line of, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Even better, today people love the line, judge not lest ye be judged. They even like the old English there. That may be the motto of our era. These are some of the most popular lines from the Gospels and are used as often by non-believers as by believers. These lines can be interpreted to fit into almost any shape you like and can be raised to affirm any faith or ideology. They're used by non-Christians all the time. So these lines, when cherry-picked as standalone zingers, behave kind of like what we do with chicken today in the grocery store. Yes, chicken. We shape these lines to fit our needs and wants. But how, how are these lines like chicken? Well, let's back up a bit. In the past, let's just talk about chicken. We just cooked the whole chicken in the past and we broke it apart in, into separate sections. There was chicken legs, wings, breasts, and thighs. And life was simple then. Now we mass produce the chicken and carve it up and pluck out the white meat and blend up the dark meat and run it through machines and slicers and shapers until it looks nothing like the original chicken. We can shape and press chicken into any bun-fitting shape we want. There's chicken patties, chicken strips, chicken nuggets, popcorn chicken, dinosaur-shaped chicken, chicken in a can, chicken fries, and chicken burgers. There are even vegan chicken products that have no chicken whatsoever in them but are sold under the name chicken. From this poor bird, we have created the island of Dr. Moreau in the frozen food aisle. We pick out the parts we want and make it fit our own yearnings. We want the bloodless version. If you think of the idea of the gospels in quotes and you're never disturbed at all, you're missing some major sections of it. You might be reading the gospel like you shop the frozen food aisle in the grocery store, we push our carts and listen to elevator music and pause in the air conditioning, all in complete comfort. And by the way, you know you're getting old when the songs in the grocery store are the ones you grew up with. We open, we open a glass door in the freezer aisle and we feel the blast of cold air and we pick out a bag of dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets thinking how cute they are and how the kids might like them. But that product in the freezer has no resemblance to a chicken, none whatsoever. It has sealed us off from all the realities of the life of an actual chicken. There is no feed, dung, or blood anywhere near our shopping centers, which is nice. But we don't see anything but the clean, happy ending of the cartoonish dinosaur nugget. There is no evidence of a chicken at all, let alone the sacrifice the chicken made. But the chicken is in there. And the sacrifice was most certainly made. Few people read the words that come before or after the don't judge me parts of the biographies of Jesus. And why do you think that is? Well, for one thing, he disrupts the comfort of feeling safe and nourished. And that's what we want. There's no shortage of confusing and disturbing lines that come from the mouth of Jesus himself. For anyone that accuses believers of cherry-picking lines from the Bible to suit their beliefs, there is an equal amount of cherry-picking done to suit non-beliefs as well. 
And for this latter group, the two lines about judgment are leveraged heavily in the ongoing effort to make Jesus into some non-miraculous, non-divine, cool hippie instead of the incarnation of the creator of the universe who took on our sins for the greatest sacrifice in history, who, d who did a lot of miracles along the way. So the non-miraculous, non-divine, cool hippie or creator of the universe who can do really whatever he wanted or wants. And for the life of me, I will never understand why any non-believer would care for anything said by a non-divine version of Jesus, since then he would be a lunatic and a fraud. Anyone who denies Jesus' divinity but is still quoting him as a moral teacher should ask themselves, why would you care what he said at all if he's lying about his primary claim of being the Messiah, of being God? But let's continue. Let's look at these famous lines where Jesus told us not to be judgy. Let's go get stoned. So here's the cast of the scene. There's Jesus, a bunch of angry Pharisees, and the adulterous wo woman, or the woman who's accused of it anyway. When the Pharisees want to stone the woman who is caught in adultery, this is in John chapter 8, they try to corner Jesus on interpreting the law. They know that he's a follower of the law, that he's a devout Jew. And let me stop right here since this is probably the main point people miss right out of the gate. We just rush to the line about the judgment. The holy family of Mary and Joseph observed Jewish law with devotion. That is, they were devout, and so was Jesus. Thus, to understand Jesus at all requires understanding that he was very Jewish, and to be devout Jew means understanding what the term the law means. This also means that to understand Jesus at all means you have to understand the Old Testament, the bloody and gritty parts of the Bible. This is part of the Bible, this is the part of the Bible where the chicken was still on the farm and not in the freezer. The classic mistake people make from Marcion in the second century all the way up to the Third Reich in the 20th century and all the way up to today is thinking that you can understand Jesus without diving into his Jewish heritage. Marcion wanted to get rid of the Old Testament, just like many modern people do. And it's one of the oldest heresies we have to look back on for guidance. People have always tried to throw out the books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And you know why? Because they want to unhitch the train of Christianity from the Jews, from the Hebrews, from the Israelites. But you can't do that. Even if Leviticus does sound like your angry old uncle who lacks any spiritual bedside manner at all, you can't kick him out because he's part of the family. And without the whole family of books, hardly any of Jesus' life and teaching makes any sense. Without the history that precedes his life and ministry, half of the Gospel of John would not make sense, and most of the Gospel of Matthew would confuse the heck out of us. We need the whole, not just parts of it. You know, eventually, if you eat enough dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets, you start to wonder where the dinosaur came from. And once you start digging into the ingredient list and the supply chain, you will arrive back at the whole food, the chicken. You must have the whole, not just some industrial product in a shiny wrapper that's clean and bloodless. So, what do we say about the Old Testament? Well, in the Catechism, 
of the Catholic Church, verse, tra- uh, paragraphs 121 to 123, this is what he said. The Old Testament is an indispensable part of sacred scripture. Its books are divinely inspired and retain a permanent value, for the Old Covenant has never been revoked. Indeed, the Old Testament was deliberately so oriented that it should prepare for and declare in prophecy the coming of Christ, Redeemer of all men. Christians venerate the Old Testament as the true word of God. The church has always vigorously opposed the idea of rejecting the Old Testament under the pretext that the new has rendered it void. And then there's a reference to Marcionism, and Marcion was the the guy who thought, let's just get rid of the Old Testament, wouldn't that be nice, it'd be so much cleaner, and you can't do that. Marcion loved dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets. That's a little-known fact about history. So I haven't gotten very far yet on the story about the, the woman in the circle, and nowhere near the attempted stoning. But I, have to pa- I had to pause to say Jesus cannot be understood without the old books, nor can any part of the story of what's going on in the circle. Moreover, the need for the old books doesn't only apply to Jesus, but how could anyone understand Peter or Paul or John or the various dudes named James without understanding the history of the chosen people? You have to understand Adam and Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah all the way up to the Maccabees and all the rest of the Hebrews in between to get any sense whatsoever of what's happening in the circle of the Pharisees. If you just rush ahead to find the line, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, you've just gone straight to the freezer aisle for the dinosaur, and you pretended that it spontaneously grew in the freezer via the debunked scientific theory of spontaneous generation. You can say thanks to Aristotle for that one. Nuggets do come from somewhere. They don't just grow in the freezer. Okay. I'm gonna un- now I'm going to unhitch from the chicken metaphor from here on out so as not to beat a dead horse. I wanted to say a horse-shaped chicken nugget, but I don't know if it has been invented yet, and I can't imagine any marketing meetings where we'd want to have a horse-shaped chicken nugget. Okay, Jesus stated that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, which is a statement forgotten by those who want to carve out the hippie version of Jesus and get rid of the Old Testament and the old laws of Moses. So what does, quote, the law mean? Jesus is talking about the Ten Commandments and the Torah. Now, I don't want to get into whether he's talking about natural law, ceremonial law, or cultural law of the Hebrews, because that's more than I can handle. I'm not going to lie. That is, that's far more than I can handle. So what you need is a Trent Horn or a Jimmy Aiken on Catholic Answers or Jim Blackburn Um, to break that question down. There is some great stuff on Catholic Answers about this exact thing of what is the law, what does it mean, what was Jesus doing correcting the law. But anyway, in his ministry, Jesus corrects some of the old law, and he does away with some of the old law. And then in Acts of the Apostles, they change it a little bit more with the Council of Jerusalem. But the good news is this. What we need to know is that Jesus perfects the Old Testament law. But while he makes these corrections, he has immense respect for the old law. He also said, Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter 
or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law until all things have taken place. So why did Jesus believe in the old law so much, aside from that he was Jewish? How could he be so deeply dedicated to the old law? And talk about dramatic, too. He's defending the old law so much that he says, not only will ever, every letter be fulfilled, but even the smallest part of a letter. So I can think of one reason why. I can think of one particular reason, one primary reason that really sticks out to me. And it seems to be very clear, and it makes perfect sense once you consider it. And it's this. It's because he made the law. He wrote the law. He's God. That's his claim. So yeah, he's down with the law because he's the author of it. Again, for anyone that forgets that Jesus is claiming to be God, while they read the Gospels, these statements will make no sense. The chill teacher version of Jesus would not speak this way of the law, but the divine author of the law, who used human authors, sacred writers, to record his will, would speak this way of the law. So yeah, he likes the law. He gave the law to his chosen people. And if he's God, then he certainly agrees to his own law because he wrote it. It's kind of a surprise ending. Or it's like you have to remind yourself, oh yeah, he's God. He's talking as he's saying he is God. So if you're reading it differently, I don't even know how you make sense of those statements. The mistake people make when reading about the Hakuna Matata version of Jesus is that they've already rejected him as divine. And therefore, nothing he says makes much sense because he is actually speaking as God himself. To read his words as a profound teacher makes little sense when he starts dropping lines like, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Wait, what? Okay, if he's just a dude with peaceful ideas, then he didn't witness Satan fall from the sky like lightning or wherever he fell from. Surely someone has already tried to fit that into their desire to legalize drugs. It's the perfect line. Hey man, I saw Satan fall from the sky. Oh, that must mean Jesus was on psychedelics. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. And there's no way we could prove that even if you wanted to argue it. I've heard that for Exodus where people wanted to say Moses was high on the mountain and like not just physically high, but um, uh, literally high on some kind of drug. Well, how are you going to prove that? How are you going, even going to know that? So Jesus was high, all right, but that's because he was the highest being incarnated into the flesh to walk with us here on earth. Here's another question. How do you reconcile a purely human Jesus with a line like, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day? How is an entirely human Jesus going to raise anything up? On, and on what day? I mean, I know he's a carpenter, but scaffolding is not what I'm thinking there when he's saying raising something up. And if he's not God and he claims this power to just raise stuff up, then he's crazy or he's a liar. And if he's God, then it makes sense. But it's also terrifying. And it's no wonder Jesus gets irritated with the people all around him because he says, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, generation how long will I be with you? How long will I endure you? And that's my, one of my various favorite lines where Jesus is irritated by us regular people. Sometimes I wonder what he would say to me 
if I lived with him, like if we were roommates. If I imagine Jesus living with me, it's a good mental exercise because when I go and pour an oversized bowl of Kellogg's Raisin Bran from the mega-sized box, not the family size anymore, the mega-sized box, it's huge. And then if I cut up a banana and throw that on top and throw a bunch of blueberries in, I just have to wonder, what would Jesus think of such a food spectacle? And worse, what would he say when I ate that bowl, like an animal, and then, and then when I went back and poured a second bowl? I suspect he might say, I never knew you. I never knew you were such a pig. So for everyone today that throws out the Old Testament, and the Ten Commandments, like they were spare parts, I wonder if they just have not seized on the most culturally shocking lines of the ancient texts and got stuck on those. Because they're there. They are there in the Old Testament. Some of the old books are difficult to read, without a doubt. And the cultural differences and scientific understanding of the universe creates a gap in understanding, but focusing on those things clouds the religious truth in the text. To toss them out is to lose the whole backstory of Jesus' life and his purpose. Jesus does not sound like someone who rejects the past and the law when he says, not one letter of the law will pass away. That doesn't sound like he's throwing it out. Further, he says not even one part of a letter of the law will pass away. And then he later even adds on to this, the, the old, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, meaning we should follow the law of the land where we live, as long as it doesn't conflict with the law, the real law, the natural law, God's law, which is the Ten Commandments, and those obvious laws, which we can know in our conscience, and that other cultures have arrived at in the same way. Um, if you would read the, uh, the Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, he has some interesting comments on how various cultures have arrived at the same laws. But um, there's a lot to discuss in the law, and I am not a lawyer. So there's, there's much to go into. Like I said, Catholic.com is a great resource for those kind of questions. So, moving on. If you do not read Jesus' words as if it were God speaking, then you will get a very odd interpretation of what the Gospels mean. You will have to skip over many parts because they make no sense. And you'll have to skip all of the miracles. You will have to throw all of those out completely if Jesus is not divine. If you read his words as the speech of an ordinary man with wisdom, you may as well just go to the airport bookstore and pick up a self-help book full of vanilla maxims on being yourself and pursuing happiness. That way, you can stay in the comfort of ignoring the many times Jesus talks about separating the sheep from the goats or the wheat from the chaff that will burn for eternity. Because if Jesus is not God, but is only claiming to be, then it doesn't matter and your ego can run buck wild. But if he is God, if he is, then the only way to read the Gospels and make sense of them is with the understanding that he is speaking as God himself. It is precisely when you make this turn that you may experience fear of the Lord, which is a good thing because it means you're on the right track. The self-help gurus say something different than what our carpenter, who's God, is telling us. Jesus is saying something very different than the airport author. 
As God, he is showing and telling us in every word and action the exact opposite of the feel-good books on the airport bestseller cart. He does say, be yourself, but he doesn't say it at all like the books of affirmation at the airport do. Jesus says, surrender to me because you are a sinner, and then you can finally be your true self. He also says, I'm going to paraphrase this with bro speak, only I can save you because I'm God. I'm not giving you some self-help tricks here for kicks, but for eternal life. So take up your weaknesses, take up your cross, get rid of your ego and follow me. Oh, and you'll find happiness in me because I'm God. But let me give you a fair warning. You will get mocked and you might get murdered if you do this thing correctly. And I'm about to show you what that looks like for real. Jesus questioned few of the existing laws of his people, slicing only those ceremonial and cultural laws that strive for outward cleanliness. He only corrected the laws that needed correction, the ones that blocked the interior conversion of the heart, the rules that stifled mercy and humility. And for a great listen on the story about the woman in the circle, there's a podcast by Tim Keller called The Humility of Jesus. So I'm borrowing a few ideas from that because I thought it was a really good reading. According to the law, adultery was illegal and stoning was the punishment. So the situation was this. The Pharisees have a woman in the middle of the circle. With the rocks in their hands, they put the question to Jesus on what should be done to her as a violator of the law of Moses. However, before Jesus answers with his famous line, He squats down and draws in the dirt with his finger. No one knows what he was drawing in the sand or doing in the dirt or why he does it, although there is plenty of speculation. Perhaps he was doing something profound in the sand, or perhaps he was just bored with their games and, like a nine-year-old shortstop, was drawing in the dirt during a boring baseball game and he found something more interesting to do in shaping the sand. In fact, I actually like that explanation better. Regardless of what he drew in the sand, since we don't know, we do not know. It's like saying that Moses was high on Mount Sinai. This is completely speculation. Um, But what does happen is what happens in the story where Jesus stands up and delivers the ultimate one-liner, the greatest microphone drop in history, of all of life and literature saying the famous line, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Then he bends down once again and draws in the dirt, again, doodling like the the detached young shortstop, or perhaps the writer of something profound and creative, writing those sins of the Pharisees in the sand. And whatever the case, whatever he's doing there, it causes the Pharisees' pride to crumble. Their, Their whole... Their whole point starts to fade away, and they're stunned. They just fall silent, and they slowly fade away, leaving one by one, starting with the elders. So they start out hungry for blood and justice, and suddenly they lose interest as the one-liner from Jesus seems to annihilate all motivation to kill this woman. Their goal of trapping Jesus in a legal argument snapped upon themselves, like a mousetrap they set and stuck their finger in it. The comment seems to turn the mirror onto the men, showing them their own sin, 
and they drift away, leaving the woman and Jesus in the center of the disappearing circle. This is often how God works in my own life, where something will happen that bothers me and gets me all wound up, and slowly and gradually I come to realize that my perception of the problem is not exactly right, and that I'm probably more prideful and lacking humility than the person I'm upset with. This whole drawing his finger in the sand, it's like a metaphor for God taking his time to correct us by stirring up our consciences, awakening us to our own flaws and failures. What a shame that I am so talented at seeing other people's failures first before my own, as this talent does me little good. It doesn't get me far. It doesn't help me. I mean, I could have pursued being a judge on American Idol or like uh, at the county fair or maybe bodybuilding competitions because I'm very keen on finding the flaw in others, but not so much myself. And maybe I missed a career opportunity here. Seeing my own flaws is, is a brutal process of introspection. And God does seem to walk me to those places, though, like he's drawing me to those places. He lets me burn off the passions before he shows me my own faults. So everyone takes this quote from Jesus and runs with it. This one gets mixed right in with his other comment about non-judgment. We say, don't judge me. Or maybe, only God can judge me. Tupac, only God can judge me now. But I would argue that those who say those words don't understand what Jesus is saying. He's not saying we won't be judged. He's saying, if you have no sin, you can judge. But who has no sin? Only one person can say that, and it's Jesus. It's God. He's the one that can judge. In this case, he can judge the woman, but he's not judging her. Well, he's not judging her yet, but he will, because we know the four last things will come, and one of those is our very own special particular judgment. <sighs> In these cases, Jesus is always indicating that the judgment is not happening right now, but it's going to happen. Judgment is coming, but luckily there is time yet. These lines are about mercy on living people, living persons, but the final judgment is 100% guaranteed for every person upon their last breath and eventually a total final judgment on every living thing uh, when he returns. So his mercy does not affirm violations of the law, but rather corrects behavior and offers a second chance in the here and now. That's why the last verse of the story, I think, is the most important of all. He tells the woman, well, first he asks her, has anyone condemned you? And she says, no. And then he says, the last line, go and sin no more. So the implication here is that she did sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't say, go and sin no more. But then he knows that everybody sins, so it's not like a, it's a rare thing. Every single person ever does it. Uh, but she has another chance. He's giving her this chance. He, she's forgiven. I, I have to read it as that she's forgiven. Go and sin no more. This is the most important line in the story and has parallels to the story where Jesus heals the paralyzed man. If you remember that story, they lower this, this guy down through the roof, which is insane all by itself. People are ripping a roof apart to lower this paralyzed man down so Jesus can heal him. And Jesus says, 
he asks the people to consider what is more amazing, that he can make this paralyzed man pick up his mat and walk, or that he can forgive the sins of the same man. Obviously, this, the medical miracle is what amazes the people. But the claim that he can forgive sins jumps infinitely ahead in terms of wonder. There's just no way you can even say something like that and be taken seriously unless you're God. The people who witness the event are more amazed at the medical healing, except for the Pharisees, because they hear this other thing. They, they're tuned in to what he's saying, the ultimate blasphemy, he's calling himself God, which is why they're so mad in the first place. But truly, the forgiveness of sins is far more profound and meaningful, which is what he's trying to convey to the people, and that's why the Pharisees get so mad. This forgiveness for the woman in the circle or the paralyzed man, it brings up a couple of questions, as in, who can forgive sins? Well, only God can do that. A cool hippie cannot forgive your sins, and I know a few cool aging hippies who still believe in peace, love, and dope, but they cannot forgive sins. They're very cool, and they're great guys, but I don't think they can forgive my sins. A drug user on psychedelics also cannot forgive my sins. And if one of these types, one of these guys told me that he forgave me for all the evil things I've done, I would just buy them another beer or drug, whatever their drug of choice, because I would consider them pretty intoxicated at that point. So why do non-believers and deniers of Jesus' divinity, why do they read these lines and consider that an ordinary man has any power to forgive sins? You can forgive someone for something they did to you, but you can't forgive them for other sins that they did to other people. I think it's more likely that this forgiveness question is ignored or just glossed over or not looked at very closely if you, if you want the hippie, cool dude, teacher, Jesus. And actually, I think many people do feel kind of like Jesus is divine, but they don't want to think about it too closely because once you really dive into that road, that, that path, I mean, or if you stare at the crucifix for a long time, you start to see your own sins and you feel the need to change. In fact, that's why I feel like crucifixes should have the spent body of Jesus hanging in the feet so that when you look upon it, and really look at it, you see your flaws and the wounds of Christ. A bare and clean cross doesn't really deliver the same message like a cross with the mangled body of Jesus fully exposed does. Because you can see his bloodied head, his punctured hands and feet, the many cuts and bruises from the scourging, the scuffed joints from falling three times on the road to Calvary, and the gaping hole in his side by a spear that was rammed into his heart. On that cross, the cross with the body, you can imagine how the sinless man squirmed and hung and suffocated under his own weight while being jeered at and mocked for all his goodness while he thirsted under the heat of the sun while that happened for three hours, dehydrating and struggling to breathe the whole time. He had no sleep the night before and he'd been beaten and ripped apart with Roman whips. And that is the cross I need to see, not the empty cross with no nails and no body. I do not want to see the before cross. I want to see the after. I don't want to see the cleaned up Disney version of the cross. 
the ugly cross is where the life of Christ and his death makes sense and the mystery of his sacrifice can just begin to make sense to me. Then I can begin just barely, just barely to see how my own sins and fallen nature put him there in that horrible place and somehow, strangely, how that awful sight shows the greatest act of humility and love the world has ever seen and it becomes the ultimate example of how to live and the ultimate symbol of hope for our souls. The second question is, how can he forgive her sins or anyone else's sins? How can that be? And what is happening? How can there be no consequences for breaking laws when he says no part of the law, not one letter, nor a part of a single letter will pass away? And that's the question the Pharisees want answered themselves. And in a clever way, Jesus does answer it. He answers it by showing the men that judgment is not taking place that day, not by them. And there is much more to this story. For starters, did the woman commit adultery alone? Of course she didn't. Of course she did not. That's not possible. So where is the man? And why isn't he also in the center of the circle? I think everybody starts to ask this question the more they read the story. Well, surely someone committed adultery with her. Shouldn't he also be stoned? Where's the man that committed the act with the woman? Why is she the only one being accused and tried in this case? This is one of those moments where you can see Jesus treating the dignity of all people equally, woman or man. He cuts through the double standard and he's subverting the culture. Wait, is he, oh wait, wait. Is he smashing the patriarchy here? I don't think so. He is establishing some kind of equality and eternal judgment here, as Paul realized a few years later when he said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free person, there is not male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there's that, there's that line. But if you believe Jesus is God and he is speaking as God and he speaks highly of the first and most famous patriarch, Abraham, and does, he does that about the others like Moses and Eli Elijah and Jacob and Isaac, then he doesn't real, seem real keen on smashing those people since after all, he chose them. Again, he's God. So what is in the Old Testament was selected by Jesus, by God. He does the selection of the people, the choosing. That's his, that's his role. Next, who are the men that want to stone the woman? Jesus implies something incredible here. The men that want to stone her are adulterers themselves. This one I'm not fully clear on, but I, I, I suspect it's true. At the very least, they are guaranteed to be sinners of some kind, and surely they broke the law in some way even though they're Pharisees who are very strict about keeping it, but everybody knows they, you'll cut the edges if you got too many rules, and surely they've broken some of the rules. And maybe they're likely worthy of getting stoned as the fullness of the law prescribes, just like the woman. Should they be stoned for the same crime? Maybe for a different crime? I, I would bet they are guilty of if not the same crime, then something else. Just as most men today are guilty of it, of that crime, nearly all of them are as they open their phones at night and pop into the websites um, and basically look at women. They look at degrading pornography in the images and then 
before bed they clear their browser history and pretend they haven't committed adultery. Well, Jesus is very clear for us today that looking at that kind of thing is adultery. It just is. He, he doesn't split hairs about it. It's probably the most basic thing he says in the, uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And I've been guilty of that as any in that regard. As these websites beckon us, they tempt us, we look for this easy access. And while we do it, what are we doing? We're defiling our marriages and relationships while we project our sin onto others, even maybe those who are on the screens taking part in the act, instead of looking at our own behavior of staring at it. How many millions of men have partaken in looking at porn in the last 24 hours, only to go online afterward and then lament the fallen morals of our society? That's what I see happening in this circle. The Pharisees are still encircling the woman today as we sinners act as spotless as a lamb. What a crock. We do this while the Lamb of God squirms in agony on the cross for our fallen hearts to forgive us, to give us a second, third, seventh, and 77th chance to get this thing right. So what happens to the woman then? Well, we know she's not condemned. But saying, go and sin no more, implies that she was guilty of the accused act. I feel it's safe to assume the woman is forever changed after this moment, like so many others that Jesus comes into contact with, as he fundamentally replants them in rich soil. He rips out the roots of old ways, and that redemption, the replanting, comes with a huge caveat, one that I feel most people miss when they throw around the judge not lest ye be judged one-liner as if it were some kind of shield. This redemption that Jesus preaches only happens in the gospel stories to those who have the correct humility before God. And it's not just a one-time thing. It's a continuous thing you have to pursue and maintain. He cures people who have faith. Yeah, you have faith and you're cured. It happens all the time. In some cases, he cures people, but not all of them change their ways, such as the 10 lepers that he cures. And only one of those lepers comes back to say thank you. And it's a Samaritan of all people. I have no idea why that would be a bad thing, but I didn't live in first century Judea. The one leper comes back to him and Jesus tells him, he says, 10 were cleansed, were they not? Where are the other nine? Has none but this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? And then he says to the leper who returned, Stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. That's one of those lines that makes me uh, shudder a little bit. There's a lot of these. That means the other nine, uh, if this one is saved, his faith has saved him, 90% of these, say, of these uh, healed lepers are not saved. That's, that's a concern. That should be a concern for all of us if you're reading this as Jesus is God instead of just the uh, cool dude, hippie, big Lebowski, Pumbaa type of version of Jesus. Faith has saved this one leper. What's the implication there? Well, his sins are forgiven. And the other nine might be healed from leprosy, but they are not changed. They have not changed. The other nine are back in the arcade of life, living without their physical malady, but afflicted with the spiritual malady yet, and they're not giving any thanks and honor to God. This is what happens when you make God a transactional being for redemption, only when you think you need a lift, when you need a boost, when you need a, uh, your ticket punched. 
You cry out for help when you need it, but you turn away as soon as you have what you want. That is where the judgment will come down, and this cleansing of the ten lepers states it pretty plainly, in my opinion. And of course, it's all my opinion, but a lot of this I try to stick to Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Gospels. That's the two books I try to put together with this. But the change is what must happen. Without the change, the condemnation will come. Forgiveness entails expected duties that follow. Otherwise, there's a lack of understanding about what the forgiveness meant in the first place. Fortunately, we get repeat attempts here. You can always go back to confession. You can always go back to God, ask for forgiveness. God is well aware of our weaknesses, and I believe he wants us to know and embrace our weaknesses. In fact, there's a saying from St. Bernardus that your weakness is how you will be purified. It's exactly what happened to me. If you don't know your weaknesses, how can you be prepared to fight off the temptations that will cause you to fall? Really, knowing your weaknesses becomes a great gift. Gifts and crosses come to us all, and sometimes the cross becomes the gift that awakens faith. It's a very strange thing, but it's true, and it happens every day. If we receive forgiveness, it must really be received, and not as a get-out-of-jail-free card. The one unforgivable sin that Jesus alludes to is the rejection of the Holy Spirit, which is the rejection of God, because the Holy Spirit is the third person of God. So anyone that rejects God inside their hearts will not receive forgiveness. That's the unforgivable sin. This is another one that sends a chill to me, as I often wonder about that. Obviously, nothing can be hidden from God as we are an open book to God. We're, we're very easy to read for him. There is no secrets. And how easily our petty pride can rise up and knock us off course, tipping us right back to a subtle rejection of Jesus, making him into a personal redemption center where we go when we need to exchange our token prayers for forgiveness. Those who receive the Holy Spirit see their whole life change. Those that understand change their ways out of joy. Those that do not understand do not change. So the judge not lest ye be judged line is shortened by most people to the detriment of the concept as there is a key line that follows it elsewhere whenever Jesus mentions the idea of judge not. In the story of the stoning, Jesus says nothing about judgment and she appears to have a clean slate. Go and sin no more. Like the lepers, she's starting fresh. But as we saw in the ten lepers, only one is actually going to be saved. Curing or forgiving should arouse faith in the healed or forgiven, but this does not always happen. As soon as people get what they want, they just return to old ways. But elsewhere, Jesus does say, stop judging that you may not be judged. Everyone loves that line. But the very next line in Matthew after that is this one. For as you judge, so will you be judged. And the measure with which you measure will be measured out to you. I've never heard anyone add this part when they quote the first part of the line. I just hear the judge not, stop judging. But I never hear, measure for measure, you will be judged. We just say the first part because it makes a good comeback. And then allows us to agree to disagree. Or more likely just permits us to make up whatever rules we want. Since that's really what we're after. Judge not alone, just those two words, 
it allows our own pride and disobedience to continue unchastised and unchanged. But it doesn't account for the next words that Jesus says, because a judgment is coming, is what he's saying. A judgment is coming in full measure, and that includes our choices that we make. So even if you, or a coworker, or a friend, a schoolmate, or a relative, doesn't get to have the final word on judgment in this world, someone or something does in the next, and it's God. So who is doing that judging? Do you think it will be the cool hippie Jesus? I don't think so. It's the fiery Jesus speaking as God. We forget about this Jesus. I mean, he killed the fig tree for not producing fruit. We forget about this God-man who said, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and throw them into the furnace of fire, and their men will weep and gnash their teeth. Yeah, nobody really quotes that one. Oh, some people do. Um, the hellfire and brimstone speakers do. But it's important to read all of the Gospels and not just take out the judge not line um, or let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Don't forget about this one. I mean, this one's kind of important. He says he's going to throw them into the furnace of fire. Yeah, that's that's the one I'm, I like to uh, read a couple times over and not just the judge not. So in fact, in conclusion here, if you don't believe in God, or you don't believe in Jesus as God, but you read the line, so will you be judged, then who exactly do you think Jesus is talking about as doing the measuring? Who's going to be measuring out the judgment? For those that do not believe, but quote these lines, how can the idea of cosmic judgment still mean anything to you at all? Yet these lines still resonate, because even when reminded of the measure for measure, non-believers kind of nod along. It's always these things with Jesus. He's, he's so attractive that believer or not, there's something you just can't stop talking about him or wondering what he meant. Even while claiming atheism and disbelief in heaven or hell as things that don't really exist, people still want some kind of ultimate payback or justice. You can see that happening right now in the world. We, you know, Anyone who says something that's not appreciated or, or part of the current narrative of the world will get um, it's called canceled of course you know they sh they're even taking away bank accounts of people now who say things so or do something that is not liked by the government or some or two twitter users who have uh, five followers and somehow they get the people fired from their jobs you know an infl infiltration of karma seems to have wafted into the room but that idea doesn't fit into christianity Judgment is to karma as an apple is to an orange. Jesus shares no concept of karma. He's talking about a final judgment. We get, each get our particular judgment, but there will be a final judgment, and he will direct us all to heaven or hell. And he mentioned hell many times. He mentions it all over the place, and he says very plainly that souls are going there. So that does not sound like the cool hippie allowing us to do whatever we want. I don't remember any verse, and I've looked, that says, yeah, that's cool, uh, go get drunk, trash the place, lie, cheat, steal, gamble, be prideful, 
commit adultery all you want, have random hookups, do whatever you want. It's all good. I'll just save you at the end. That is not in there because I've, I've tried to find it. There's nothing, nothing like that, nothing even close. But maybe, maybe that will turn up in the next version of the Dead Sea Scrolls that is found in some cave near Qumran, but I wouldn't hold my breath. I don't think it's coming.